and a warm welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. I'm with you until 6 this evening and hope you'll be able to stay for the whole program. But if that's not possible, the program is streamed for a week at 3cr.org.au or you can have the podcast posted to you also through 3cr.org.au. As February is subscriber month, I urge regular listeners to join this wonderful radio station Details again on that web page or ring on 94198377. Now to the program for today. I'm speaking with Marilyn Havini, whose home is Booker Island, Bougainville, about the most recent elections there, where the COVID has been a problem and generally the situation there on Bougainville. We'll hear more about Extension Rebellion with Marion Chincotta, Impact of Trump's Four Years on Latin America with Fred Fuentes, and looking to the Biden president in terms of genetic engineering and other related issues with Bob Phelps. Why there is a state of emergency in Malaysia, I'll be speaking with Lee Tan, and the launch of the National People's Inquiry into our strategic dependence on the United States. So that's it. I hope you can stay with me. Ishmael Toriyama has been declared president of Autonomous Bougainville, following an election process held over six weeks in which 25 candidates contested the presidency. There are also voting for women's and former combatant seats and for open seats. These elections were on the back of the 2019 historic referendum where 98% of Bougainvillians voted for independence from Papua New Guinea. They came just over 20 years since the ending of a decade of the brutal war which cost the lives of an estimated 15 to 20,000 Bougainvillians. Today I'm speaking with Marilyn Havini, formerly from Australia, but who has made her home in Bougainville, a founding member of the Hako Women's Collective Booker Bougainville, human rights activist during the devastating war on Bougainville, together with her late husband, Moses Savini, who was one of Bougainville's leading campaigners for independence. Marilyn designed the flag and has continued her work with women's rights and teaching on Bougainville. And in last year's honours list here in Australia, was made a member of the Order of Australia for her significant service to the international communities of Papua New Guinea and Bougainville. When we're talking about Bougainville, we have to remember that it's still not independent yet. Can you explain the situation? Yes, I can. We did hold a referendum, and it was a 98% and an amazing vote for independence. And according to a lot of the people, they think they are independent, but in fact it was a non-binding referendum, which means that the Papua New Guinea government, the parliament, has to endorse it. It has to go before that parliament. And so there is a joint committee that's been set up. There are task forces from both sides. They've already had pre-negotiations. Our Bougainville team went across in the beginning of January, and it was right when there was this um, parliamentary crisis with the prime minister and the vote of the conference, etc., right that very time, so that was a wasted trip. But they did set some agendas and 
they're gearing up for their next uh, negotiation. The period that they're allowing that well, our President Ishmael Tolama has already stated very clearly and publicly that he expects the negotiations should be immediate and that we should have a definite path forward by the end of this year, by December. And he's hoping that it would only be a three-year a three-year exercise before independence. The outstanding period would be five years of his term of office. Is that what people expected or not? We all realised that, yes. There was enough um, awareness that people understood, but a lot of people choose to not accept other people's will over their lives. You know, Bougainvilleans feel so independent. They live so isolated here that the mentality of the community is that they are who they are and they know who they are and why doesn't the world recognise that? Yeah, in, in terms of that isolation has actually worked in our favour in terms of COVID because there is no COVID in Bougainville and being able to control the with a, with a special state of emergency set up, controlling and monitoring every single person that departs and arrives through the Booker Airport. Um, and the facilities are all waiting to take any COVID patients, but they've been able to actually screen everybody. And nobody, uh, the last, there's only been two cases of COVID that have come into the country. Both of them were last year. One of them was a very mild case. And then from the here, a Bougainvillean coming home on his mine, you know, the mine workers fly in, fly out. And he was uh, isolated back in and served out and is now free of COVID back in here in New Island. And his families are all contact traced here. And no, none of them are positive. There's not many countries that can claim that, is there? Not many, no. <laughs> I think it's pretty, pretty rare. People here, they know that it's out there. But we live life totally normally as if COVID never existed here. Talk about what normal is on Bougainville, particularly on Booker Island. Booker Island, um, normal, we have, it's an indigenous lifestyle. It's a, it's a, there is cash cropping. There is very moderate, very low forms of income in the village in, where I come from in the north coast. There is no town centre. Uh, there was only one bank for the entire island, so therefore normal for me was to stand in a bank for four hours to get served at the counter. And so people with disability, elderly people, they just flake out and give up. And there's, it's a very, there's two tellers to serve hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people standing in the bank or being roped off and not monitored outside not to enter until you know they, they control the numbers allowed in. But queues like that... Um, not dissimilar uh, in the rest of Papua New Guinea, but I think Bougainville would be the, one of the worst. I've heard expats who've been around the country say that nowhere is as bad as here. Bougainville was known or is still known as the Matrilineal Society, Marilyn. Is it, is it yes. still? It is matrilineal in cultural terms of passing on your inheritance. It is patriarchal in terms of leadership. So uh, you know, where it's matrilineal and patriarchal, that's the counterbalance. It doesn't mean that women run everything. They don't run the show. The men are the biggest decision makers, but we do have respect for women. Because it's matrilineal, 
and we inherit through the female line, the men regard women well. So in terms of natural lifestyle here, I feel very safe. I feel very accepted and respected as a woman, although there is still family sexual violence because of the war and the trauma uh, that was never addressed. And we have safe houses, which I'm part of our half women's collective that I work with. We have a safe house and we cope with normal things that happen, which aren't normal, but, you know, what people get up to, like incest and, and family violence, etc. But in terms of matrilineal and ruling, what we do have is a regard that we should have some sort of gender equity in governance, in decision-making. And you did mention to me that you were interested to know about what women's role is in the new parliament. And this is what's really exciting. Our current president seems to be doing very well with matrilineal and equity issues there. So we have four women in our parliament and every one of them has got a significant position. We have three regional members that were elected that are purely women's seats that are voted for by both men and women. And the woman who was elected for the regional seat in the north, she's a lawyer and she's been placed in, as chair lady for some parliamentary committees. And then we've got Juanita, who, um, oh, sorry, the regional members, the central one, Geraldine Paul, she's been made the Minister for Agriculture, which is wonderful. And, the, and then the regional woman for South Rosenville, she's the Deputy Speaker. And then the very exciting woman, Jonila Matbob, who won an outright seat for Panguna, her own constituency seat, she's Minister for Education. So we do have some significant women leaders now. That's great. In the Parliament. What about your Women's Collective? Can you talk more about what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yes. yes. Uh, when I came home, my husband Moses went back to setting up the parliamentary select committees and all you know, the permanent committees, etc. But I went home to be part of the social development of, um, and of reconstruction post-war. And I, while I was doing some AVI assignments, Australian Volunteer International assignments, with uh, the Federation setting it up for the whole of Bougainville, when I left that and went back to the village where my husband died, I concentrated on the collective. And that is a, just, a, just for Haku, which is our constituency. We're one of 30 constituencies of, of Bougainville, of the autonomous region of Bougainville. But we have the highest population. We have no development up there. We've got no, as I said, no town centre, no, no government facilities except for uh, schools. Talk a little bit more about education for the kids. Are they able to complete their education on Booker or do they have to go elsewhere? This is, education is a very big issue in Bougainville. We do have lots of schools but very few senior high schools. So when you talk about completing education, uh, children are school leavers at either grade 8, which is considered the end of primary or lower, lower secondary, but that is now still within the primary school system. And then if they, if they get a score high enough, they are accepted into a junior high school, which is grades 9 and 10. And then at, nine, at um, grade 10, that's where it becomes very difficult. They have to go out of Bougainville. There's one, two, there are three schools in Bougainville where you can go to grade 12, and it's very, very selective. So a lot of children are trying to get 
anywhere in the country to get into grades 11 and 12, which is what we would call normal matriculation. So what needs to be done in the future with the economy is to have enough money to keep those kids at school yeah. on Bougainville. We have a big need, not just for those very elite children that actually make it through to year 10, even to get to grade to, to finish grade 10, you're considered well educated here, although it's becoming more and more difficult. So we do need more schools, but my, my heart is for all those children that leave school at grade 8, and even the grade 10 leavers, there is not a lot around. Uh, children that I've adopted and raised helped um, pay school fees and get them through. I've been able to get them into one or two vocational schools, and those have been worthwhile. But they keep upgrading the vocational schools to technical high schools, trying to build up the high school capacity. And then that leaves a big hole for, for the vocational side of things. And we're always scrambling to find places for our children to keep going with extra skills after their basic education. It's one of the priorities of, of the government. Yes. Mm. yes, it is a priority. Is, are they talking about it and how they can oh, yes. bring in it? <laughs> all the time. And uh, just recently, to contest the ABG election, the, uh, who was known as the regional member for Bougainville in the PNG Parliament, Joe Lira, he was... In, before he became a, uh, a member of the PNG Parliament, he was running the distance education school, which is like a, you can do university or matriculation by distance learning, but the resources are terrible. The system is just terrible. I've tried putting children through that, and it's a long, drawn-out process, and the materials are not ready on time, and the marking is very slow. But if, you, if the child is really, really determined and they get through that, they can re-enter the education system at, at a higher level, but I've seen very few actually succeed, although they, they a lot make an effort. But this Joe Lira, he, he found that the, because of the PNG politics system, that he found that he thought he was wasting his time in the PNG parliament and he stepped down. And so just last week we had a big by-election. They're counting the votes now to replace him as the regional member of Bougainville in the PNG Parliament. But he stepped down because he got, uh, I spoke with him personally, he got very frustrated when he was the governor. He saw education as such a top priority, he put all his efforts into building a polytech and he made arrangements for curriculum, partnership, etc. with New Zealand. But no government gave him any kind of counter-funding, the money necessary to complete that polytech. So it's been a white elephant and he's still trying to complete it. We can get that polytech up. We, we might be able to get on, online learning, all sorts of things happening. He sort of invited me onto the board. I don't know if he's serious about that. <laughs> Marilyn, what are the plans for the future for the economy? They don't want to go back, or most people don't want to go back to mining big scale. Where do they see the economy going to facilitate things such as they're looking after the kids in the education field. Right. Economy is the number one focus right now for, to, to meet all those other needs. They do see agriculture and fisheries. They see all the... All, we have got so much resource, natural resources that they are boosting all of those, building all of those to its capacity. And we are collective... I was just talking to you before. We've collective. We've just um, won a uh, half a million projects for cocoa uh, as 
cocoa regeneration. And they're looking at downstream processing of their natural products, like building their own chocolate factories and, and things like that. But the mine is still on the agenda, but it's very firmly off the uh, political, being used as a political tool. And they've got now a mining policy for Bougainville. And just today there's a press release out that where most of the landowner groups of the mine have assured our president that they won't go circumnavigate, that they will work properly with those processes because BCL gave its shares, it dumped its shares onto PNG and PNG bequeathed them to Bougainville. So now that Bougainville, for the first time, actually owns a large portion of BCL, it's a new BCL here and I don't know how they're going to perform. I don't know if they're genu how genuine they really are, but, but they're part of the think tank of what might happen in terms of some sort of Bougainville control of mining in the future. Any talk about compensation from Rio Tinto for the damage? There, well, this is where this wonderful new Member of Parliament Joanila Matbob, she's a social worker from Panguna, from the area, and she has been, her first speech when she was elected was to highlight the terrible consequences to the health of her own constituency, the children, etc., with the damage that the pollution has done to their health. And and for the first, I think it, it came out about the very same time as the big news broke about the Aboriginal sacred sites in West Australia and CRA for the first time actually did say yes we will address a clean up but I haven't, I'm, I'm not back here long enough to know whether that's progressed beyond a verbal offer, I don't know And then of course you mentioned earlier the trauma that's come from that time, are they going to address mm. that impact on the people well, as well? Well, that, that's the sort of thing that our community service organisations are flat out doing. So what we have done, um, our little Hustlers Collective has been just chipping away, chipping away with program after program on youth, for women, for all the sorts of human issues, human rights issues, peace building issues, food security issues, wash health, you know, water health, sanitation, because uh, we don't have enough sanitation in every village. We don't even have enough water. We're all desperate for water right now. And people are having to go back to the ocean and just washing the ocean because there's no fresh water. We're going through a real dry period. But, but we're also doing what has become our bread and butter, what I call our bread and butter programs, are end violence against children programs, uh, awareness and addressing um, trauma through, through that and referrals. And we have a positive parenting program because we've seen that it's the family unit that got the most damaged and broken up by war and by being divided, by being on different sides of the war, etc. So as we are building this positive program parenting, we call it SAFE uh, SPLP or Straight Pillar Passion Long Lookout in Piccaninny, the, the right way to care for children. And that is a six-week intensive program with with people doing homework, in implementing strategies with their, within their families, experimenting with how to be better parents, how to really address the needs of their children, learn who, who their children really are, take notice of them, etc. And we're making 
we're making progress. We, we are, people are, are loving it. People are saying, first of all, they look at it, what? Positive parenting? I'm a parent. I know how to be a parent. And it's not till they actually go into what we've designed, a homegrown course, specifically addressing what we have found through all our programs here, that they say, oh, this is what we've been longing for. This is, this is really life-changing. And, and uh, on top of that, we've been working with food security. We've been working with nutrition, planting rice, as a, because rice is now a second staple and it doesn't damage, in, doesn't rot. You can store it. So we've even got a rice mill going in our little resource centre now and encouraging people to farm rice up ground, mm. not, not water rice, up ground dry rice. Finally, Marilyn, you have an important role on Booker. How difficult or easy it is for you, because I know you've been in Australia for quite a while due to family. How difficult or easy it is for you to move from one society to another? (laughs) I go through a culture shock every time I go back to Australia. I'm just not used to that kind of overload of plenty. I actually feel more comfortable living... This, this very simple lifestyle here in the village with surrounded by culture. By I know everybody in the village. I know all my neighbours. They're all relatives in some way or other, from one you know from one end to the other. And of course Moses was was known throughout Bougainville. So wherever I go in the whole of Bougainville, I feel really comfortable and accepted. And it's it's actually a pleasure to be here. Of course I still love Australia, and there's so much look forward to when I go to Australia but that's become very difficult with COVID what should have been a three month trip to go home and you know bury my mum and and help my family and sorting out her her estate etc it was a five month marathon facing four different authorities to travel from Australia to get here I had to get out of the Sydney bubble to get through into the the, the, sorry the Queensland then I had to satisfy Queensland requirements. I had to ask, I had to apply to Australia for permission to leave because citizens are not, once they get home to Australia, you've got to have an exemption to be able to leave Australia. And then I had to apply to Papua New Guinea with a whole nine attachments of all sorts of documents. It's not just getting on a plane anymore. And, then, and I had to prepay for all my quarantines each direction. And then once I was in Papua New Guinea, I had to submit applications again to Bougainville for all that screening to be allowed into Bougainville. So when you ask how, what's it like to travel between, I don't know if I'll be doing it anymore. Your children, Marilyn, four of my own. They, are, yes. they are also living between two cultures? They can't. They would love to. With, with independence, they will be Bougainvillean again. But they were Papua New Guinean on passports like Moses. But when Moses was branded a terrorist and uh, denied his citizenship, my whole family was left out high and dry. Australia rescued them and, and they became Australian citizens. Moses died an Australian citizen because PNG never, ever, ever restored my family from the war. So it was an enormous cost to them. So the only way my four children can visit, my grown adult children who would love to contribute to Bougainville can visit is as family visiting, you know, maybe up to three months maximum at a time. And now with COVID, they're not allowed in because PNG is only allowing people to come to Papua New Guinea if they are citizens or permanent residents. And my children have neither of that. They're effectively locked out of their homeland. Yeah. 
It's sad. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Marilyn, and good luck with the near future and the, and the longer future. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for showing continued concern for Bougainville. It's very much Australia's neighbour and it's very much Australia's responsibility to keep engaged with the outcomes of what happened because of colonialism and because of the mine and Australian economic interests here. So I appreciate 3CR and, and you and what you're doing. Thank you. Bye-bye. Marilyn Havini speaking to me from Booker Island, Bougainville. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Free Palestine Melbourne is holding an online forum exploring the implications of a number of Arab nations normalizing relations with Israel while it continues to occupy Palestine and oppress the Palestinian people. The forum will explore the implications for justice for Palestinians, for geopolitics and peace in the region, and for the expanding gulf between autocratic rulers and their people. Speakers include Dr. Khaled Hroub from Northwestern University in Qatar, Dr. Ahmed Jamil Azam from Berzet University, and Palestinian and local author, playwright and activist, Dr. Samah Sabawi. Join us the 10th of February, Wednesday night at 8pm. Register at fpmelbourne.org forward slash events. That's fpmelbourne.org forward slash events. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Extinction Rebellion, abbreviated to XR, is a global environmental movement with the stated aim of using non-violent civil disobedience to compel government action to avoid tipping points in the climate system, biodiversity loss and the risk of social and ecological collapse. It was established in the UK in May 2018 and Marion Chincotta is part of the group here in Melbourne. When I spoke to Marion, I commented that I would imagine that being born in a country area in New South Wales on the banks of the Murray River would have influenced her interest and activism for ecology and the environment. Thanks for remembering that, Jan. Yes, so I grew up on Barabaraba land, uh, up at Barham, in like just like you said, up on the Murray River, and it's a beautiful place. It's on the edge of um, a huge red gum forest. My mum grew up on Gundawa Island, which is a beautiful place. So we would go there every weekend to visit our grandparents. And so you, yeah, so you're right out there in nature. And I think that that's really come through in all of our lives. You know, my siblings and I. It's a pretty direct line. Why do we want to join Extinction Rebellion? Because you know we don't just love our families and our lives, but we love our our beautiful Earth and um, the other non-human species on it. And so it is quite a great connection that you've drawn from my upbringing, which you know was pretty wonderful and privileged, and we were kids and we were outside a lot, and the you know the bush and the river and the um, wildlife and the birds and all that sort of thing and we love it and then uh, that's under threat from this climate emergency it's not all 
light and life, as well as love, there's a lot of rage. So I'm very, very angry with the adults. I, I don't trust the adults to look after the environment because they've proven over and over again to be unreliable. So that's why I've got onto the rebellion because it satisfies my own personal need to connect with people who want to protect the environment and actually to um, engage in um, non-violent direct action towards both raising, keep raising the issue that we're in a climate emergency with the community and with decision makers and to just make our own small non-violent direct action, direct steps toward environmental protection. And how many of those have you been involved in or with? With Extinction Rebellion, yeah, so just quickly, I'm in the um, XR Darabin local group and also in Grey Power and also in XR Forests. So the actions that I've been in, so I went in the, the Spring Rebellion a couple of years ago and the Civil Discobedience, uh, which was all very bonny. And then one of the ones that comes to mind, so after the lockdown in December, we did an action called Climate Crisis Equals Health Crisis. And that was with a lot of health-involved people and actually health professionals. And we did a bit of street theatre there at the Commonwealth Department of Health in early December. The reason for that was that Australia's 10-year national preventive health strategy that came out in December made no mention of the health impacts of the climate emergency. So that event was to tell the Department of Health to stop having callous disregard for the health and safety of ourselves and the non-human species via the environment. So uh, what we did, there was a, a group of rebels were there and they did a dying and they got covered with some little shrouds and they had death certificates issued by real, they weren't real death certificates, but they were real doctors. And a few of us, so that includes myself, we were patients, so we were in patient gowns with mock patient bracelets that said, I want to survive, because that's what we do. We, we want to survive this. So um, we locked on to the doors there. So I've been in some action. So that's an example of an arrestable action, and I wasn't arrested. But just to say, so with Extinction Rebellion, it's always clear whether you have, whether you, and you have to think ahead of time, if you're going to be in an arrestable situation or non-arrestable. So there's a lot of um, other roles. You don't have to be glued onto a road, but you can be. Have you done that yet? So that's some um, glued onto a road. Yes. No, but I glued onto the health department. That's a pretty big brag. Yeah. You know? It's a big disclosure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You spoke before yeah. about the, the people making decisions, the people who've got the power who aren't necessarily the young people. Have you got the young people in your group? In XR Darabin, yeah, we do. There are plenty of young people and young activists that are um, getting up and getting going. And also in XR Forests, there's, yeah, so plenty of people that are, who are in their, you know, 20s and 30s. And then in Grey Power, by definition, we're the, we're the 50 plus. So that's the one that, that doesn't have young people in it. And we've also been really enlivened by the work of other organisations like the School Strike for Climate Change, School Strike for Climate, and um, very supportive of their stance and they're taking a specific voice of the youth 
because it's about their future. It's about all of our future. But it's um, particularly poignant to be thinking about those young ones whose um, opportunities are being limited by what my generation have done. Have you been out in the forest for an action? Yes, I have been out in the forest. So there's um, plenty of non-violent direct action taking place in the forest. So right at present, Frisia has done good coverage of um, the work up at, in East Gippsland, up at Erinundra, and I personally have um, gone out into the forest for non-violent but arrestable direct action. The reason for me is not just my, of course, my love and connection with the forest that we've already followed, but native forest logging, it's just mad in terms of climate. Like the number one easiest thing, and we would save money. So native forest logging in Victoria is subsidised. Vic Forest is subsidised, and it's only activists and groups like Friends of Leadbeater's Possum and so on that are forcing Vic Forest to operate within the law. So that's a separate group to XR, but I'm just saying that nonviolent direct, direct action is being by citizens at their own expense and risk is what's needed to get Vic Forest to even act within the law. But our stance and, and of the people that I'm with in XR Forest is that native forest logging has to end because of its contribution. It's, it's releasing carbon for no reason. It's also endangering our water. It's endangering species. So there are species that are on the brink of, they're, they're called endangered, but some have gone extinct already. And then there's this incredible waste of the beauty that we need to replenish our souls and to be in, to be in the forest. So there's, there's those other experiences of being in the bush that I know um, I can't even talk about. It's just quite profound for me how beautiful and nourishing that is. And that, that's lost when we log and then burn our forest and it turns into something else. Just to get into people's head and see what they get out of this by cutting down trees and burning the forests, how it must make them feel. We know how it makes us feel, but they... They want yeah. to do it. They make money out of it. So it's a process. It's a you know 17th or 18th century thing that was done. So people feel, from what I've heard, okay, that they have a historical right to keep on going with that. And things have changed. Community attitudes have changed. And also what's happening with those trees. So I was in, um, I was with a friend out at the forest at Tulangi yesterday and we saw where they had done the logging in the old days and it was a tree here and a tree there and they were taken and no doubt used for high value uses such as timber um, for houses. At the moment what Vic Forest is logging is going into pulp for paper and it's being it's being mainly exported which is crazy. So we can make paper from plantations and in fact Four out of the five lines or processing lines at the Maryvale Mill um, are all set up for plantation forests. So what I would be saying to people who their, their livelihood is threatened, if native forest logging is threatened, there has to be a transition plan brought in and that has been funded. The, the government, state government have talked about money for that, but a transition to 
plantation forests and because we need fiber you know my children both work my sons both work in construction and our our need for fiber is real and there's also a need for viable regional jobs uh nobody wants everybody in country victoria to have to move to melbourne and exacerbate the problems here you know we want viable vibrant um local communities and i i feel that that really could be done if there could be a good business model for putting in plantations on private land but while there's free and subsidized native forest logging that can't grow but do you have a problem with yeah. plantation logging because of the it's a a one off plant usually what does that do for the wildlife they can't live there like they used to yes so replacing a forest with a plantation which is what we're doing more and more and more one day there'll be zero forests and there'll be monoculture right exactly that that does nothing that is not habitat that is not biodiverse so that is the process that we want to stop retain the forest but plantations on private land which are already under pasture or just those bare denuded hills that we see when you drive anywhere in country victoria if they could be if those private landholders could be paid to put in trees and that it could be monitored and those could be the fiber see then the state government doesn't have to put in roads the roads are already there farmers already have the equipment and they know how to grow plants so i would just be saying have plantations and logging on private land that's currently under grazing or left fallow my proposal yeah and what does xr great power get up to yeah we they we xr great power are pretty awesome so xr great power are running a thursday lunchtime vigil for the forests on state parliament steps every thursday as according to covid regulations so if they can't get out because of covid or if they can't be more than a certain number they we stick with that xr grey power looking at and exploring as individuals what we can do so researching and what we can do with being in using our financial power so share investments held by our super companies analyzing those which are the worst writing to so i've written to this is based on research by others in grey power they gave me the information so i wrote to uni super who hold my super so as a uni um lecturer it's a condition of my employment that i'm with uni super and i wrote to them and i said well you're investing in these fossil fuel things including the railway line for adani so um are you going to change that or will I pull our money out and they said we're not going to change so I was able to withdraw my money because I'm casual so I was able to disinvest so there's um attention and research to those investment things and then there's the weekly action about to, to tell state government that we need to cease logging our native forests and uh if people want to see what grey power are up to they can just look on the facebook groups it's just xr grey power so there's always um more ideas welcome so do people actually join or do just people just come along yes. to a, a demo or a, an action and queue into that so joining then 
you can, you can, we can, I can and I am involved in the planning of how we're going to go about it and what we're going to do, right? But there's also no reason why people can't rock up to an event that, that's a public event that's being run by XR. So there is a joining process which is preferable and we actually have intro talks. So there's an Extinction Rebellion introductory talk um, that's given and um, I think that's how I first got involved with uh, hearing Jane Morton present that, you know, we're running out of time and it's um, we're not being heard and there isn't time to get the change over. We just have to work with the politicians we've got now and get them to acknowledge the climate emergency and act on it right now. And is that through Facebook or the webpage that people can join in that way? Yeah. Yeah, both of them. Yeah, both of those they'll be able to find. And if they want to go to an intro talk or just um, check out what they see and see if it's um, the kind of thing they want to be involved in, there's going to be uh, an autumn rebellion coming up in March. So there'll be, it won't be hard to find events if people want to check it out. And yeah. Finally, Marion, your work with Aboriginal groups and individuals over many years, how has that influenced your work today? My work with Aboriginal people throughout these decades that's continuing, so I'm doing a little bit with Wadarong, which is great, I love it. It has shown me that there are winners and losers and that our current system isn't just and that we need to do something about it. The main thing that I've really brought home is from having worked in public health is the power of prevention and that we really need to prevent problems both in health and disease but in caring for our environment. We need to prevent it before the before the problem becomes established. I suppose that's that's where it all comes together for me. So working in public health epidemiology, um, we want to pre- we want to recognise risks and make sure unpopular and you're always talking negative stuff, yeah. But um, we we want to prevent illness and prevent problems. And as we've seen with um, the historical and ongoing deprivation that the Aboriginal community, then we get the results, yeah. So then we get all this continuing adversity that they are facing. So I guess it's given, it's helped move me to a position of anger. But the other thing I've seen in Aboriginal community controlled sector and in Rumbalara Football Netball Club is the power of community and that people, ordinary people sticking together, you don't, life's not a dress rehearsal. You don't have to wait for permission or wait until you're good looking or, you know, super organised. The time to do, the time to do it is now and in connecting with others in the power of community. Great. Thanks, Marion. Okay, thanks, Jan. Marion Chincotta, a proud member of Extension Rebellion. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show, or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. On the program last week, journalist, author and activist Fred Frentes talked about the impact of the four years of Trump mainly on Venezuela and Cuba. Today we go further into Latin America. Looking at Central America, I suppose the focus would be 
Mexico and the border area, but when you talk about refugees at the border being sent back or the children being taken from their parents, these are people from many of those countries in Latin America, Central America. Yes, that's right. And in fact, we've already seen, perhaps uh, not uncoincidentally, given some of the corporate media's focus and, and like, likeness to, to sort of amplify the issue of migration, but we've already seen that there are, you know, as has been happening now for, for many, many years, uh, waves of uh, refugees, asylum seekers from Central American countries, in particular from Honduras, you know, a country where, you know, the US carried out a right-wing coup uh, just over a decade ago, and where we've seen since that time, uh, you know, the, the country descend into extreme political violence, chaos, uh, crisis, people fleeing Honduras, but not just from Honduras, uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, Haiti, through to Mexico, and then trying to cross the border. So this, of course, is no doubt going to re- re-emerge in the media. You know, how how is the the, the Biden administration going to deal with this issue? Because that's, it's an issue that's, unless you get to the fundamental root causes of this wave of migration, it's not going to stop. It's, it's going to be ever present. And how each government or how each administration deals with it, both discursively in terms of how they talk about it, but also concretely what their policies are, there tends to be generally more of a difference in the speech than in the actual actions. But this will be a, a key part of, of determining what I think is, is very clear, though, is irrespective of perhaps what changes may occur in terms of border policy, border uh, you know, building the wall, the, the camps that, that have been set up in that area. I think what is unlikely to change is a real strong focus from the US government of actually, as I said, trying to deal with those structural problems that, that are actually at the root of this wave of migration, you know, starting with stop interfering with electoral processes in that regions that have already seen in countries like Honduras, Haiti, democratically elected governments toppled and replaced by violent regimes that have, you know, essentially thrown the country into chaos, thrown the country into poverty through large-scale corruption and are really behind a lot of the causes of, of this migration. And the brutal policy of Trump and his cronies of, of putting these people into virtual cages and taking their children away, and there's over 500 children now in the United States who are without their parents. Their parents don't know where they are and no one knows where they are, or they say they don't know where they are. Well, obviously, this is going to be an issue that you know, somehow the Biden government administration is going to have to resolve. Uh, I think, though, a lot of it will come down to pressures built up by governments in Central America demanding better treatment of their citizens, pressure by movements in the United States because really, as you said, you've got the, the kids in the cages. Two ways to solve that, to change that situation. One is to free those kids with their parents in the United States so they can stay there and claim citizenship and become US citizens. Or the other option is to resolve it in inverted commas by putting the parents back in the cages with a new lot, the new wave that comes through, ensuring that everyone stays in the cages which was the previous policy of, of the Obama administration. Without the pressure, I think the likelihood is that the problem of kids being alone will unfortunately be solved by just ensuring the parents stay with them or that the entire families are just deported back to Central America. And I, I'm not sure that that's a, an adequate solution. It's certainly not an adequate solution to the current situation. And, of course, we had to remember over the decades and decades that migrants from Latin America are quite welcome as long as they work in industries where they hardly get paid anything and have to just virtually have to fend for themselves. 
Yeah, it's, and it's, it's why immigration has always been such, such a, a very tricky topic in terms of the, the differing visions that occur within the, the sort of broad political spectrum, as you've rightly said. And it's not excluded. Like the, 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 the border policy itself is, you know, whilst it's sort of supposedly aimed at sort of saying, oh, we're, you know, we're going to stop everyone from being able to come in, the, the, the reality is that you know, the US government knows that there are millions of you know, so-called illegal migrants inside the United States, but they, they also know they cannot and, and will not ever really be able to, to kick them out and do not want to kick them out because, as you rightly said, they provide an important layer of basically extremely underpaid, uh, no-conditions labourers, largely in agriculture, but in, in hospitality, you know, or all around, particularly the, the whole southern part of, of the United States. So it, whilst the you know, the government may, may say they want to be hard on immigration, they never really have a policy of kicking everyone out because they actually economically benefit from the situation. So the, the real solution to the, you know, one that's a humane solution, one a democratic solution is one that says, look, all of these people should be given democratic rights. All of these people should access have access to unionisation. The kind of things they constantly decry Venezuela for, even though, you know, most of the times it's just fabricated lies. US government should be the ones leading the way and, and allowing that to happen in, inside their own borders. I, I think we're unlikely, as I said, to, to see those changes happen uh, under Biden. Certainly, at least we've had some, some very strong mobilizations uh, by those people that I mentioned before and by the social movements in the United States and by, by the governments of, of the regions, you know, uniting, putting pressure on the United States. The continent of... South America, we've only touched on a tiny Venezuela in the north. Brazil overshadows many of the other countries, but how have they been treated under, under Trump? Certain ones picked out for favouritism, others denigrated and had sanctions against them or whatever. The reality is that, in, in, you know, in, in general, the Trump administration meant, meant a couple of things for the region. On one level, it represented a, a, some element of change. But that change was largely a kind of a sense of emboldenment or a sense of encouragement of other far-right or right-wing populist forces. The most clearest example of that being Jair Bolsonaro, Brazil. You know, again, a bit like Trump, although I don't think you can compare the two, but, but, you know, if you want to reduce it down to just a, a kind of, you know, someone who no one really envisaged would be a president, one day just deciding that he would run and ultimately being, being elected in, into the presidency and, and certainly on the right wing of the spectrum, although I'd argue that Jair Bolsonaro is, is much more right wing Trump is in the sense that, uh, unlike Trump, Jair Bolsonaro truly has a, a fascist ideology, tru- truly idolises the era of the military dictatorships, truly believes that the, you know, the, the only problem with the military dictatorship was that they didn't kill enough leftists and communists, and if they had have done that, then all of Brazil's problems would have been resolved today. Trump's you know, ascension it sort of it gave... gave gave confidence to these sectors. But in general terms, I think a lot of the, the US policy towards the region hasn't tremendously changed. Uh, perhaps it's because Trump was more interested in focusing elsewhere in the world, whether that was uh, China or looking to, towards seeing what he could resolve in terms of, of North Korea. Uh, but in terms of in the region, there wasn't any you know, dramatic change. And, and the reality is that presidents come and go, but the heads of the, you know, the State Department, the heads of the foreign ministers, you know, the different ministries, the heads of the staff in the embassies generally tend to remain the same and generally tend to, unless openly called for, generally tend to maintain the same policies as before. 
And that's what we've seen in, in my field, I would say, in, in most countries. It's just a, a continuation of, of what the U.S. has done. Really, if, if, if we want to talk about a, a broad regional policy of the U.S., it's, it's really just been stepping up that campaign against Venezuela. So we saw that, uh, you know, through the, the formation of the, the Lima Group, even if the U.S. wasn't directly involved in it in behind the scenes, it was a key player in forming the, the Lima Group, which is basically a coalition of right-wing governments to support Guaido uh, and supposedly support the, the struggle for, for democracy in Venezuela. That combined with using then that conservative bloc in the Organization of American States to undermine, again, in particular Venezuela, uh, but also other left-leaning countries, you know, Bolivia. Of course, we saw the, the, the coup that was then rolled back. We the coup in 2019 that was rolled back with the elections of, of, of 2020, attacking Nicaragua. But th- those are not new policies. Uh, I mean, the, the attacks on left-wing governments precede Trump and I'm sure will, uh, you know, unfortunately, continue uh, under Biden. So I really think that the key difference was that emboldenment of sort of right-wing anti-establishment forces um, that we saw with Brazil being the exemplification of it, but with other other strains of it uh, appearing in the region. So what you've been saying over the last while is that you're not too confident of what Biden will bring to the region. No, in fact, what is highly likely, uh, well, okay, what is likely, maybe highly is too strong, but I think what is likely is under a Biden administration, is, as I said, under Trump, there was an element of perhaps not focusing really on the region beyond Venezuela. Uh, I think it's likely that a Biden administration, firstly, will have a more concerted and serious strategy towards Venezuela than, than Trump's one was. I'm not sure if Trump just believed he had the correct strategy or was misinformed or was influenced by the fact that he ideologically felt more aligned with the more far-right elements within the Venezuelan opposition But it was clear that while his strategy was going to cause a lot of pain and hurt to Venezuela, it was extremely unlikely to have achieved his objective of of dislodging Maduro from the presidential palace. I think Biden administration is much more likely to think more in a coherent manner of a strategy towards Venezuela, but it's also likely to turn its attention a bit more to the region to deal with everything from what what we've talked about, the question of of immigration from Central America, to deal with the, the Venezuela question, also to, to have to deal with the, the Brazil situation uh, because you, you're going to have a, a, a country, uh, the biggest country in the region by far, r- ruled by a government that is ideologically hostile to Biden. And that's not something that's really happened before. I mean, you've had, I wouldn't say it's the inverse, but you, you know, you've had a situation where, for instance, previously under the left-wing Workers' Party, they were certainly refused to be subordinate to the US, but were never, you know, never going to, seriously challenge the U.S., rather what it would, you know, basically had a quid pro quo agreement with the U.S., which was like, look, South America is important to Brazil, you know, we don't want U.S. interference there, Brazil is going to be the kind of regional hegemon uh, uh, there. I think now, you know, uh, Jay Bolsonaro openly spoke in support of Trump, you know, openly was saddened by by Trump's defeat. So this, that will be a tricky situation. They're saying that Biden administration will have to refocus attention. So I think in, in many ways, we'll, we'll probably see that a, a more concerted, smarter strategy against Venezuela, though we're yet to see what that's going to involve. You know, is it going to involve continuing to support Guaido? Is it going to involve putting Guaido to the side to link up with more moderate forces in Venezuela to try to seek to push uh, the Venezuelan government into dialogue and, and negotiate some kind of electoral uh, road out of the crisis? It should be should add to that that the Venezuelan government has always said and it's all already said again 
with Biden's inauguration that it's willing to sit down with any government and and to discuss and uh, and debate. Uh, of course, respecting each country's uh, national sovereignty, and I think we'll see yeah. So refocus on, on Brazil, refocus on Venezuela in a, in a more coherent manner, and a, just a general reorientation uh, to the region. So in many ways, it, it will bring some new and, and perhaps bigger challenges uh, for, for the region as a whole. And I think as a first interesting test, and it's hard to say what will happen because we'll still have to see how the summit happens and everything, but early this year, due for the Summit of the Americas, now the Summit of the Americas, was a, a, a regional gathering set up roughly about 30 years ago by the United States of all the countries in the region at that time uh, to work towards the, the Free Trade of America's agreement. Now, that, that, that's gone. No Free Trade of America's agreement. That was defeated essentially in the mid-2000s by an alliance of, of left, centre-left governments in, in the region. But the summit is due, and not only is it due, it's due to be held in the US this year. So that will be an interesting test to see, well, what, what happens on, on that level? Uh, what happens at that summit? What does the U.S. pursue as its key priorities for the region? How do the other governments react to that? How do the other governments react to the broader debate and, and challenge that's happening in the region, which is the, for the first time in the Organization of American States, which is the body that the U.S. set up back in the 60s that continues to function of all of the countries in the region, minus Cuba, who was kicked out shortly after the, the revolution, and Venezuela, who has withdrawn, although Guaido supposedly now represents, or his representative, his delegate, represents Venezuela um, at the meetings of the, the OIS. But that, for the first time, is starting to fracture, and we see the attempts now with, now with the Bolivian government back in power, the left wing moving towards socialism back in power, with elections in Ecuador, which could see the re-emergence of the left back into power in Ecuador, attempts to build again, once again, a left counter, uh, not just within the organization of American states, but to build institutions as counters to the American organization of American states, reforging UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations, reforging CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States. All, all these things are all, all, all under, under flux at the moment. They're all, all things that are under Trump had sort of been quelled, but now we start to see again these tensions rise in the region, and that's why I think the Biden administration can't afford to turn a blind eye to this. It will have to have a policy to the region. What exact policy it has, though, is yet to be determined. But as I said, without wanting to say everything will be exactly the same, we, we at least have something to go on, which is what happened while he was vice president under Obama. And we know that while he was vice president under Obama, we saw the beginnings, not the beginnings, the, 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 at least the, the, you know, the ratcheting up of, of sanctions on Venezuela. Counter to that, we saw the beginnings to attempts to normalize relations uh, with Cuba. At the same time, we saw the coup in Honduras occur under Obama. So it, it's unlikely that we'll see something, a tremendously different pattern to that of what we saw under the Obama administration, a, a carrot and stick approach. Uh, rather than Trump's, uh, you know, a concerted carrot and stick approach with, with a regional vision, rather than Trump's, you know, belligerence and, you know, mono focus on, on Venezuela and Cuba is, is likely to be the, the difference that we see over the next few years. I could still imagine that whilst I think there will be a refocusing on, on Latin America, my, my guess uh, and the indications are is that, that you know, Biden's high priority will be, will, will continue to be China. Um, I think that's, that's really where the administration's focus will be, uh, China and the Asia, Asia-Pacific region, but as I said, without neglecting Latin America. Thank you, Fred. 
No worries, thank you. And I've been speaking with Fred Fuentes. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. We hear now from Bob Phelps, Executive Director of Gene Ethics Network. Looking now to the United States and the election of Biden as the new president, some people are enthused, other people are cautious. Where do you fit in? We certainly um, think it's a mixed blessing as well. Um, we have to remember that Biden has um, a history of uh, supporting uh, wars overseas. We've got a situation where um, U.S. military uh, are located in 150 countries around the world, including Australia, of course, in Northern Territory, got thousands of uh, U.S. forces, and Biden has been a supporter of that. Interestingly, he's also um, appointed a celebrated geneticist, Eric Lander, who was very involved in the Human Genome Project as his presidential science advisor. And for the first time, uh, that advisor will actually be made a member of the cabinet, will be engaged in um, key policy decisions. That's a new eventuality. He'll also be the director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, where the policy on all of these scientific issues is taken as well, and that will give him a substantial amount of influence, I think, along with Francis Collins, who's a geneticist who has been the head of the National Institutes of Health, and he's staying on in that role. Genetics um, is up there in the thinking of this administration, obviously, and what we see going on is a convergence of things like nanotechnology, information technology, genetics, and, of course, artificial intelligence as well. These uh, what have till now been largely separate areas of research are coalescing, and that's a whole new ball game as well to think about. The biosciences are going to be um, top of the agenda, I'd say, and this, of course, is where the importance of getting the bioweapons research that we just talked about under control because um, just last year, um, or 2019, should I say, Fort Detrick, which is where the main U.S. bioweapons research goes on, uh, was actually closed down temporarily because of um, being unsatisfactory. There's been a question mark over a high-level university facility as well where Literally, rainwater has been leaking into the facility. You know, it should be just shut down, really. But they're asking for significant amounts of money to try to fix it up. Another decision that Biden's taken is an unfortunate one, too. The new Secretary of Agriculture, Vilsack, was the uh, Secretary of Agriculture for the, for the two Obama administrations, referred to in a friendly kind of way as Mr. Monsanto, because he has always, as a governor earlier, and then latterly as firstly the Secretary of Agriculture and then as a hired hand in the dairy industry, the uh, mega dairy industry in the USA, while Trump was in office, he has um, really promoted uh, industrial agriculture far ahead of family farming, particularly farmers of Afro-American ancestry. And we're just now, as, as groups in the USA are, voicing our concern and saying that Vilsack shouldn't be approved by the Senate. You know, the, they have Senate hearings and the uh, nominees have to go through 
through a number of different hearings and steps and to prove that they're fit for the job. Marcia Fudge, who's um, a high-profile person in the Democrat Party over there, was the alternative and the chosen nominee, really, of the civil society groups that are concerned about this. Uh, she's got a long history of advocacy for family farmers, for regenerative farming systems, and for generally making agriculture more equitable, because at the moment, the U.S. Farm Bill, which pours billions of dollars in subsidies every year into farming in the USA. It's not a level playing field. We don't have such, such subsidies in Australia. It gives them a really serious advantage in international trade and so on. The farm bill mostly pays out to huge industrialised farming systems and not to family farmers. And Marcia Fudge was very much a supporter of refocusing those resources on making sure that small enterprises could survive and that family farming would be the uh, number one priority for the government, not the huge industrial uh, farming systems. It's really much the same here. Uh, the Federal Department of Agriculture here regards the 20% of large farmers here in Australia as the main ones to receive things like research and development of new systems to support them, while 80% of our farmers who actually feed Australia are not advantaged in that way. Uh, they miss out substantially. They don't get any um, research and development support. Subsidies are poor, and yet they are still paying in levies and so on. And as a result, they're very disadvantaged having to either work themselves off the farm to, to remain viable or sending their wives out to work in the local community in various roles. We need some rebalancing going on in Australia as well. It's small family farmers who feed the world. The huge industrialists are producing commodities, many of which these days are used for industrial purposes, such as the production of ethanol in Europe, for instance, rather than feeding people. And of course, they're also feeding animals which is a very, very inefficient way of uh, feeding the human community. So we need a major rethink of those systems as well in America, but also in Australia. We started off with flowers, and we're going to finish with home gardens, people growing their own vegetables. And it's not going that well, is it? Because people don't really know where their seeds come from. Fortunately, we do still have some suppliers, of course. We've got the Eden Seed, we've got um, Diggers. There are a number of small seed suppliers around Australia doing heirloom varieties and organic seed. Pretty lucky in that respect, although the situation now is that something like only six or eight major transnationals own probably at least 80% of the global seed supply. Most of that is patented or um, controlled under plant breeders' rights protection. Those huge corporations, again, are very much in control. But we saw during the COVID lockdown a huge rush. It was like the rush on toilet paper. The heirloom suppliers like Green Patch, Eden and Diggers and so on were absolutely run off their feet, were not able for quite a time there to actually meet the supply of people wanting to grow their own food. I think that's um, 
a fantastic thing that people want to set up their gardens, want to be more self-sufficient. And indeed, there is um, a major conference coming up. I think it will be online about urban agriculture. There's a focus on trying to feed Australians in a much more uh, sustainable and local way. And of course, contributing to that is the fact that a lot of kids now are um, learning about gardening and eating well in their schools. And that is um, a major innovation as well. We've got this problem of the patented and variety protected plants, the industrialization of plant breeding. But we've also, on the other hand, now got this uh, much greater awareness of the need to save seed to be aware of what you're planting and to eat well from your own resources if possible, to set up a small garden, even on your balcony to have some uh, herbs and um, some silver beet and a few other things that will grow well, even in small spaces, to leave those um, huge commercialised uh, products behind. And of course, we need to advocate for organics. Uh, the organic industry doesn't use synthetic chemicals, doesn't irradiate its products because, of course, irradiation of all fruits and vegetables is in the offing. The Food Stands Australia New Zealand are now considering whether or not as a measure for the elimination of insect pests from particularly tropical fruits and vegetables, but also potentially if the fasans decide so from any fruit or vegetable that's something that people need to keep a sharp eye out for as well. There are labelling requirements, and we're in the process of, of, at the moment of following up the Queensland Government's application to food standards for this approval to irradiate all fresh fruits and vegetables. We're following up with letters to particularly the supermarkets saying, if and when this arrives, are you seriously going to put fruit or a vegetable that's been zapped with the equivalent of 10 million x-rays into your fresh fruit section and not properly label it? Or are you going to be risk averse to your reputation on this? It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out, but we hope that the uh, retail industry in particular will do the right thing. Although there are going to be labeling requirements, of course, as usual, there is, is one thing. They won't really inform shoppers properly. We need to uh, be making sure that everybody is well informed and can make a clear decision about whether or not they want to buy something that's been um, exposed to a very high level of radiation in, in the course of its, uh, of its processing. A bit similar to the fact that we say that milk has been pasteurized. You know, it's a commonplace now, but it's important that we note that milk is routinely processed and that it does make a difference that things haven't been frozen and then defrosted. We do want to know uh, that something is genuinely fresh. And so I think we need to start saying that to our food retailers, saying we want things that are supposed to be fresh, genuinely fresh, because the thing about irradiation in particular Irradiation also extends shelf life, so a fruit or vegetable that looks fine might actually be very old, and so, of course, its nutritional value uh, might be compromised. When we're talking fresh fruits and vegetables, that's really a very serious thing. If we go out to our garden 
and we pick the lettuce, the silver beet, the rhubarb, the tomatoes, or whatever it is, and bring them in, and we have them for lunch, we do know they're fresh, as close as it can be how it should be in the retailers as well. We want fresh to mean fresh and not um, stored by one means or another for the last six weeks and then land on our shelves pretending to be a fresh product. Grow those seeds, develop those gardens, steer clear of irradiated food, and if possible, go for organic, which is um, saying no to those um, intrusive things like irradiation, synthetic chemicals, and other nasty stuff in our fresh fruits and vegetables. And thanks once again to Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Stay tuned to 3CR Community Radio. On January 12, the Malaysian King declared a state of emergency until the 1st of August to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. But there is the belief that more is behind this move. I spoke with Lee Tan, environmental consultant, and asked her what does the state of emergency mean in Malaysia? It means that parliament doesn't sit, which is a problem, because if an emergency is declared for COVID, parliament can still sit, you know, via Zoom meeting and all sorts of other teleconferencing mechanisms. But, you know, this emergency, because it's so politically motivated to preserve power for this government that's obtained through a coup, it means that the government or the prime minister can actually do whatever he pleases to retain his political power. And also, you know, making decisions, the parliamentary processes, which is very, very undemocratic by not having parliament king and also restricting the movement of people. COVID is a big problem for Malaysia because the infection rate is rising. But the emergency that has been declared so far hasn't actually led to reduction in number of infection, which is a problem. And that shows that the country is um, not effectively dealing with um, COVID. Yeah, and whilst the police are getting a lot of power through the emergency declaration, and also the politicians in power are able to do whatever they like without having to account and the voters or the citizens in, in making you know decision, spending public funds, which did not have to, you know, will not have to go through the proper process of parliamentary debates and so on and so forth. So do you believe there are specific things that he wants to get done in that period before August that he would not have been able to get done if this state of emergency wasn't there? I think his power base, this is the Prime Minister Muhyiddin, uh, who became a Prime Minister through a coup uh, early last year, he was at risk of losing power, basically, with Anwar Ibrahim, the key opposition leader, making threats at the government. And because of the emergency, parliament's not sitting, 
Hanya Ibrahim cannot actually move to change the government. That's the fundamental reason why there is this declaration of emergency. There's all kinds of claims and counterclaims about member parliaments crossing to his party or the other one. But whatever it is, the power base of the present coup government is under thread. And that's why the emergency was declared. What role does the king have? Well, the king often does not play such a significant role, even in Malaysia. But in this case, the king has been particularly interfering. Some claim that it is not constitutional, that the king stepped in to back Muhyiddin. It, it is rather problematic, especially when there are other issues like the Linus, Red Earth Company from Australia and its radioactive waste. A decision is being made now to decide on a site for a permanent waste dump. And the site is actually a water catchment area. But, you know, the government is hell-bent on pushing ahead with it. Again, you know, with the emergency being declared, people can't protest. Even to actually read the document is a problem because it is on display in the office of um, the Department of Environment and the soft copies, it is in kind of JPEG or image format, so you can't really read it through searching on keywords and so on and so forth. You can't download it either. So there's all these other issues. Uh, and with the emergency declare, people can't protest like before. What about the migrant workers in Malaysia and particularly the Rohingya people who are there? How does this state of emergency impact on them? Freedom of movement is a problem and also many of the migrant workers live in very poor environment where and crowded and um, unhygienic, poor housing conditions where COVID is actually spreading quite uh, rampantly in these places. They may not be able to seek the required medical attention. They can be under police guard like a concentration camp without having access to the medical facility. COVID will be basically killing them more than anyone else. Although at the moment, the community transmission is a problem for almost every state in Malaysia right now. Why? Because I don't think they are imposing uh, effective lockdown, allowing businesses to open as usual. Beyond the emergency declaration, there isn't a lot of uh, measures. Testing is limited. Even the whole vaccine issue was uh, up in the air a little bit. All of a sudden, the the king was uh, going to Saudi to discuss, you know, getting a vaccine through Abu Dhabi, which is rather odd and also at rather inflated price as well. So there's a lot of unanswered questions. And because of the emergency, 
opposition member parliaments cannot actually question some of these moves that are very peculiar and undemocratic. Um, and there's many allegations of corruption around, you know, the whole COVID kind of movement control and some of the expenses that government had basically went ahead without debates in parliaments. I believe that the courts are still open. What's happening with the, the cases against the former Prime Minister? That's the Najib Razak. He was embroiled in the corruption scandal uh, with one MDB. And he was trialled for that, yeah. Now, firstly, with the coup, the former Attorney General, General Tommy Thomas, who was a respected professional lawyer who kind of took up the position under the previous kind of government that's being voted in by the people, uh, promising, you know, law reform. He was forced to resign, and uh, he's just actually recently released a book about circumstances leading to the the coup and the change of government and also blaming reasons why he was forced to resign. Yeah, basically the judges has been, well, the attorney general's changed. In fact, the current attorney general has been embroiled in a number of corruption scandals himself. The fox has been put in charge of the chicken coup and uh, future trials will be put in doubt, especially in relation to corruption scandals, because you've got a a rather dishonest and also incompetent judge, Attorney General, in power now, you know, who is um, supposed to ensure that judiciary system is um, being kind of run uh, in accordance with the law, but run by somebody who has a very dodgy track so it is problematic in that sense. Just to go back to the pandemic for a moment, what restrictions are there on on leaving or entering the country? All entries, I think, has been restricted to big quarantine and nobody is allowed to leave the country without having to go through very, very tough kind of permit system. However, you know, politicians seem to be free to move without having to adhere to the same standards applied for citizens. And then it in itself is really problematic. And in the first place, the out-of-control community con- transmission resulted from um, political maneuvering as well through the by-election of um, the East Malaysian state of Sabah, where COVID was already quite rampant over there. But we, for this election campaign, exempted from movement control or lockdown, COVID was passing around through people from Malaysia going over there for the political campaign and then returning to Malaysia to infect other people in the community. You know, that's how it started. The hospital system is kind of not running uh, efficiently at the moment. The health minister resigned. So there's a, there are a number of problems with the whole 
emergency decoration and also inadequate and inefficient and unprofessional COVID response. The country is going to suffer a lot as a result of these and given the emergency decoration, there's very little the opposition party can do and even less for the citizens. You have a number of family members in Malaysia, Litan. How are they coping? Some are coping better than others because it's business as usual. Businesses are not affected, although the number of people allowed out severely curtailed. So, you know, in some way, they some some of the business are affected, while others are not. I think the, the hospitality business is the one that's been kind of severely affected because um, people can no longer basically eat out for, you know, for their own safety, whereas other businesses like um, groceries and hardware, a bit like Australia, where the supermarkets are doing a roaring trade and hardware shops like Bunnings are doing a roaring trade. So, you know, you've got a situation where certain businesses are doing really well. Other people, workers particularly, are finding it really difficult um, with job losses yeah, and limited trading for other businesses. The Chinese New Year is coming up on um, February 12th. So this is the second year under COVID where families are not allowed to visit each other and there's no cross-border travel, particularly between Singapore and Malaysia and many Malaysians are working in Singapore and they haven't been able to travel you know, either out of Singapore or into Singapore since COVID, which has been a really tough situation for families who's got, you know, that connection with Singapore. So the same with East and West Malaysia. Is there any culture in Malaysia of street cafes, people eating on the streets, like they do in some other Southeast Asian countries? I'm just wondering how that goes with the pandemic. So all of that, yes. Until recently, many of the street cafes were able to continue to trade. But I think with this current emergency, some can still do takeaway. But the number of, well, you know, Malaysia has a very kind of popular street cafe culture where people go out and eat to lead at night, but all of that has been stopped through both the COVID measure and also the emergency decoration. So, yeah, most of the businesses affected are the smaller businesses, whereas the the bigger chain businesses like McDonald's and KFC, yeah, and all, all of those multinational franchise systems, they survive. You know, they've got much better, bigger business backing. The street cafes are depending on clients coming to their store and eating and ordering food. They're the one who's suffering. Some went into online business, um, but that has limitation as well, of course. Linus, you said they've picked out or they've chosen the permanent waste site. Where is it and what do you believe the consequences will be? They picked a place called Bukit Katam, which is north of the factory, or a bit 
say, west of the factory. It is a water catchment area. At basically, it used to be a forest reserve, and it leads to a major river that's connected to the rivers which supply water to parts of the population of Guantan. Even though the Malaysian experts who had mentioned about this water catchment problem, both the state government and Linus have continued to pursue pushing through the process by both fast-tracking it under an emergency condition and also manipulating the data, firstly declaring the waste as not as toxic as would be under established international guidelines and standards. So instead of um, calling it a low-level radioactive waste, which is what it is, that's also contaminated with other toxic substances like heavy metals and chemicals. Um, they have declared it to be a very low-level radioactive waste. And this latter classification often only apply to very limited types of waste. Usually it applies to plants and equipment that process low-level radioactive materials. But in the case of um, Linus, it is actually a byproduct, a waste coming from the plant. And they contain radioactive materials like thorium and uranium, both of which are toxic and radioactive with very long half-life. And under international standards, including that in Australia, they should be classified as low-level radioactive waste. And the difference is the storage. If it is a very low-level radioactive waste, they can sit in some scheduled kind of uh, monitored landfill sites, you know, with very minimal type of um, engineering uh, facility. But if it is a low-level radioactive waste, it can reach site, but it needs to be properly engineered to prevent radioactive materials from contaminating the environment. And because they have declared as a low level rate, a very low level radioactive waste. And that's been approved by the country's uh, regulator for radioactive materials, the Atomic Energy License Board. Yeah, it becomes, basically the, the, the process has been passed through that hoop, making the whole environmental impact assessment totally irrelevant, inadequate, and unscientific. So that's the problem. And right now, civil society, groups like um, Fedsevius, um, including those of us in Australia that have been watching the process, are trying to look at the situation and, um, and, and doing whatever advocacy we can, you know, to try and stop it. How long do you judge it would be before the consequences of this waste site have on the people in the environment? Mm. It will be permanent. Once it is, the waste is dumped in this site in a very unsafe, 
and technically unsound manner, it will contaminate, like it will continue to contaminate the environment either through overflowing uh, during the monsoon period because, you know, they do have very severe monsoon with over 100, you know, meters of water, rainwater we're talking about, not just millimeter or centimeter. Yeah, it will definitely overflow and through time, the structure may not hold and, you know, there'll be cracks and there'll be erosion and all sorts of problems that will threaten the structure itself. And the groundwater, so the surrounding water and environment um, will be increasingly contaminated with the toxic substances, both the radioactive materials and the toxic heavy metals. And it can get into the food chain, it can get into the drinking water of people. And all of these substances either cause genetic mutation in the case of radioactive material, and um, similarly with some of the toxic heavy metal, we're talking about heavy metals like lead, chromium, cadmium, nickel, yeah, and arsenic even, um, and perhaps even mercury. So, you know, all of these are rather toxic to both the, the um, you know, flora and fauna and also humans. So potentially the food chain can be contaminated. And the sad part is, you know, these are permanent because some of these substances, particularly the radioactive materials, yeah, they, they become more and more concentrated through the contamination process. And in the long term, it will, you know, permanently jeopardize the public well-being and also the environmental health of um, the surrounding area. So it is a problem, and which is why no country in the world would so be so willingly accept so much radioactive waste from a company. And that's why it's there. Yes. That's why it's there. Firstly, to save Linus, the cost of, uh, you know, operating. Secondly, to speed up the whole approval process. I, I think in Australia, it may take a bit, a lot longer, you know, for the approval and a lot more costly. Probably, I've read, to have it built in Australia. Not a good outlook for the people. And not at all. And it means that the whole city of Kwantan, the reputation of it being a, a peaceful, tranquil, and clean environment will permanently be tarnished by, you know, having this waste dump. And of course, it means also property value will not be as, um, as good as other cities, uh, and as before when Kwantan was actually favoured as a, you know, with this um, highly livable uh, environment. Not a good place to leave it, but the fight goes on, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yes, the fight goes on, um, but, you know, as the waste accumulates, the hazard and the risk increases, and we are fighting a really tough uphill battle with, you know, corruptions within government, with 
the far-right government we have in Australia that is very pro-mining as well, it's not going to be very optimistic. But, you know, battle whatever way we can. Um, and some of us are getting very tired, not burnt out, but just totally, you know, and, and also like we need some to have some hopeful situation. And the worst part of it is rare earth is used in low emission so-called green technology. But, you know, yet in this part of the supply chain, we have seen how unjust it is for people in the global south, particularly in this case Malaysia and also China, uh, where rare earths are being mined and processed as well. Yeah, and that has to change. I mean, if we're serious about tackling global warming, climate change, we have to also address some of the problems with the supply chain that supply the technology which we rely on in dealing with the major environmental problems which we have created through industrialization and um, industrial agriculture and also very highly unsustainable yeah, growth-oriented kind of development path that we have pursued yeah, in our world today. But that's not going to be addressed so easily. Thank you, Lee Tan. Thanks, Jan. 3CR. We're told that Prime Minister Morrison had a conversation with President Biden. He characterised Thursday morning's conversation as warm. The Prime Minister said Biden saw the Australia-US relationship as providing the anchor for peace and security in our region, and that was also Australia's view. In terms of our relationship with Australia and the United States, there's nothing to fix there, only things to build on, Morrison said. Apart from climate change... Curiously, ahead of the conversation between the leaders, centred on what Biden would telegraph about his administration's disposition on China. Morrison said the two leaders had discussed regional issues in the Indo-Pacific, meaning the geopolitical tensions created by a rising China. But the Australian-US relationship is not seen by many in Australia as an anchor for peace and security in our region. Rather, leading Australia into US wars and devastating the region in which we engage with the US in conflict. With these in mind, IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network, has launched a National People's Inquiry. I spoke with Shirley Winton, the Victorian Coordinator of IPAN, and I said to Shirley that I imagined people have been thinking of this inquiry for quite a while. What was the impetus to get it going? We actually had been discussing it for about 18 months, two years, and it's something that one of the IPAN's main objectives right from inception was to find ways, one of our main objectives was to reach out broadly and deeply into the community. How do we connect with the community in a much broader way than, you know, through the through the media, the mass media. 
and introduce the awareness about Australia's alliance with the US and the consequences of Australia's involvement in US-led wars. It's easy for us to, you know, be in this bubble and talk to each other, but it's not going to change much. And IPAN's objective is, one of the main objectives, is to build a a mass movement, an anti-war peace movement. It has to be a mass movement. So the only way that we can really develop that consciousness, that awareness about Australia's relationship with the US and Australia's involvement in US wars, wars that really have don't threaten Australia, never have threatened Australia or Australia's people, that that's got to be introduced into the discussion, into the public discussion and public debate. Because all we hear is the Murdoch media and the IPA and the, the Strategic Institute think tank decided that holding this inquiry is, has two purposes. It's a means of getting out and connecting with people getting into broader sections of the community, into every corner. We talk about connecting with people in every corner of our society, so that includes community organisations, wealthy organisations, unions, our families and our friends, and raising these issues, but also asking what do people think about it, that we introduce our views and we want to hear their responses, people's responses to that. That was really probably the, the basis of it that we had been discussing and thinking for a long time. But also the situation there internationally is that, well, in, in Australia, this Australia is now increasingly, more than ever, is subservient and integrated into the US. And so our defence, Australia's defence policies and industry, our manufacturing industry, and the military are tied to the US global agendas. When you think that our manufacturing industry, probably some of the biggest sectors are in so-called defense, but they are very much connected to the likes of multinational weapons manufacturers like Lockheed Martin, the BAE, Boeing, Raytheon, who manufacture basically for a world that's in a permanent state of war. And then there's the continuing involvement in US wars. And it, then there's also the, on the international scale, it comes at a time of the, the escalating political and military aggression and hostilities towards China by the US, it's domestically and, and internationally. So we have a situation now where the Australian puppet government is basically mimicking the US policy on China and whipping up this hysteria and we think prepare, basically preparing the Australian public for a war with China and Australia, Australian governments and military backing the US. There is, you know, US is more than ever demanding Australia's unquestioning loyalty and subservience to its policies and in particular in regard to, to China and Asia Pacific. And, you know, and this is all tied in, tied in with 2010-2011 pivot that Obama Announced. There is a kind of perception um, that under Biden, under the new administration, America is going to be vastly different. America's foreign policies are not going to be as aggressive, militaristic. And that couldn't be further from truth because Biden, it's already, all the indications are that Biden is just, in fact, is going to strengthen Obama's um, regional policies, which Trump agreed with, but he was, you know, he continued with those policies but he was just so haphazard and disorganised and all over the place that he was obviously 
not performing as they expected him to do. Biden's appointed all the, all his people that are hawks. This is in the international relations. He's made it quite clear that China is going to be a a main target for the US, probably Russia as well, China and Russia. So we're living in a world which hasn't seen this sort of this conflict and tension since the Cold War, and even that initial period, that first you know that period immediately before World War One. So building that anti-war movement is really critical. We believe that the way to do it is through connecting, widely connecting um, with ordinary people and not just living in a little bubble of the anti-war groups. Probably the, the gist of it. Shirley, can you think of another country that is so intertwined or interconnected or interdisciplined with the US than what Australia is? It seems as though we've gone way overboard. Yep. Well, that's what I, I mean, I was thinking along similar lines and we were discussing this the other day. I mean, there's Japan, but Japan, it still has a, a kind of a sense of its own sovereignty in the sense that they don't bow to, to the US like Australia has. South Korea has shown a degree of independence, even though, you know, it's chock-a-block with US bases. I don't know any other country that completely submerged itself in the US interests you probably remember, you know, there was a time when Australia was referred to as the 51st state of the U.S. I think that was during the Vietnam War and after the Vietnam War. It was half-joking, but it was quite serious because you couldn't distinguish, and you, now you can't distinguish policies, any policies between the U.S. and Australia, or you can't distinguish Australia's policies from the U.S. I mean, there was a period under the Whitlam government where there was an attempt being made to assert Australia's sovereignty, and we know what happened with that and the role of the of the U.S. So, no, I, I don't know, and we, we just lockstep and barrel in step with the U.S. policies. And the level of that, the you know, um, with the anti-China, is, is extraordinary, not just in the military sense, but in the economic sense. And I don't know if people remember, you remember May last year, Pompeii visited Australia, did an overnight jaunt, like overnight flew over Australia, overnight stopover. And the first thing that he announced was he warned the Andrews government um, about signing up to the road and belt, the China road and belt infrastructure investment. And this was, I think, the Andrews government signed up on MOU in 2018. There were a few little murmurs from the Liberals and maybe a few others, like from the pro-American think tanks. But not much fuss was made, apart from those few little murmurs saying, oh, you know, we're risking, um, you know, signing up with, with the road and belt, or with the belt and road. When Pompeo landed in, in Australia in May and made this pronouncement, and he basically warned that the US, US has been a good ally of Australia taking these steps, by the Andrews government is jeopardising this uh, friendship with the US. And it was a warning. It was a threat. And sort of within 24 hours, maybe even within 12 hours, Morrison came out and started attacking, you know, criticising the the Andrews government. And others from the Liberal Party jumped up and down. And also from the ALP, the federal politicians, started jumping up and down and, and warning Andrews to terminate the memorandum of understanding 
with China over the Belt and Road investments. That sort of gives an, an indication of the level of that compliance and complete subservience, both parliamentary parties, to US interests. Well, it just shows, goes to show, Shelley, the, the task that you've got ahead of you. You've got panel leaders and you're asking people to make submissions. How is it going to work, this inquiry? We, we've set up the inquiry. We've got a website and we're inviting people, encouraging people to make submissions, their, their views on the alliance and whether Australia should be involved in US wars. And so our um, website, that's website, an inquiry website dedicated solely to the inquiry where people can submit their submissions. And the website is www.independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. And the website has instructions. So if you go into that, to that link, it'll take you to instructions on how to make a submission. There's also eight inquiry information about the eight inquiry areas and they are impact on First Nations peoples. Terry Mason, who's a lecturer at Deakin University, he's the panel leader. So each of this inquiry area has a, has a panel leader. People might in Victoria probably know, heard of Terry Mason, who's with the NTU Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Committee and also an ACTU elder. Unions and Workers' Rights, Jeannie Ray, who's uh, formerly the national president of the NTU. Ian Lowe, doing the environment, is a leader for environment and climate. And he is one of the members who produced the first independent national report on the state of the environment. The military and defence inquiry area is being led by Vince Capitura, and I think probably your people would have, people listening to 3CR would have heard uh, Vince speak on various occasions. I highly recommend for people to, if you can find his, his YouTube and his papers and his book, be very, very good. Foreign policy is Dr. Alison Bronowski. She's former diplomat and vice president of the Australians for War Powers Reform. Social and community, it's the very reverend Dr. Peter Cash. He's the dean of St. John's Anglican Cathedral in um, Brisbane and he's the president of a progressive Christian voice. Political, including democratic rights, that's Greg Barnes. People also probably have heard and read Greg Barnes. He's had quite a few opinion pieces in mainstream media. He's a democratic and human rights barrister. He was president of the Australian Republic Movement, was a good friend of Malcolm Fraser. This is when Malcolm had, um, you know, left Parliament and realised what the real world was all about. And then there's the area of the economic by Dr Chad Satterley. He's from West, West Australia. And the inquiry chair is Kelly Trenter. Kelly is a lawyer an investigative journalist and um, at the launch she did a terrific presentation which is on that as well. Also on the website is information about each one of these eight inquiry areas and it's very comprehensive. Each inquiry area has a very comprehensive background information. People are invited to make a submission on any one of those or all of them or two or three of them. We take submissions submissions could be as, as short as, a, as one paragraph, one short paragraph, up to 5,000 words. 
it could be a general submission that generally covers all these um, areas or another aspect that people feel that should be included in the inquiry. The submissions are due in by 31st of July. The eight panel members and the chair with um, IPAN Working Group, the inquiry working group, will compile all submissions into one report. And our plan is for the report to be launched in November. We hope the 11th of November in Canberra. We may be launched in Parliament, uh, or rather it might be tabled in Parliament by one or number of politicians. There'll be a launch outside Parliament. But there will also be simultaneous launches in each state in public venues outside, for instance, outside Lockheed Martin in Melbourne, the politician offices. So that's towards the end of the year. But can I just say that the process of actually holding the inquiry, and I mean making those connections and broad connections into into the community, doing a lot of that outreach work, approaching communities and organisations, offering to discuss the inquiry with them, that is equally important as the release of the findings in this report. So the, the end result of the report is really important, but it's the, it's the process that is equally important of, you know, of introducing this and raising awareness in the community. What we're doing, we've compiled in Victoria and in other states, we've compiled quite an extensive list of many organisations, groups, unions, which we will be approaching, contacting, informing them about the, the inquiry, offering for our people, for IPAN representatives, to attend their committee meetings, attend their meetings or meet with some of their members to discuss the inquiry. We don't regard this as a sort of a of community passive, being passive recipient of the information that we will be presenting. We actually want to hear what the community has to say and the community has a wealth of information and knowledge and for instance we've already been contacting, contacted by some veteran soldiers have related to us some of the consequences of their involvement of their what is essentially what they say are US wars including in, in Afghanistan. We also want to really discuss with um, the unions for instance how is it relevant to unions who are dealing with a situation where the manufacturing jobs are disappearing, where there's a military defence industry is developing, in contrast and other alternatives for sustainable industries to develop. So it's a two-way process, and it's not. And again, it's not just a, the community being a, a passive recipient, but actually actively engaged and. People engage with IPAN and with our working group on the inquiry, organising meetings with community organisations, writing submissions. Um, part of the process of thinking about focusing, focusing minds on some of these major issues that are emerging. And uh, we are facing a world where the threat of war between two powers is, you know, is not unthinkable. And it also introduces a whole question of what, what sort of Australia, what sort of country do we want to, to live in? So the submissions are important in themselves too because it does focus people's minds on that issue of what sort of country do we want to, to live in. I should also add that with the submissions, uh, we're also calling for people to put in submissions of alternatives 
to the present status quo. Alternative industries, like at the moment, um, as I said, the defence industry is being virtually run by the US military industrial complex, the likes of Lockheed Martin. What are the alternatives? What are the alternative industries that we can develop, sustainable industries that um, protect the environment and have secure jobs, long-term secure jobs? I guess you could say it's, it's, it's connecting a lot of the dots because we can't talk about the military, we can't talk about defence, we can't talk about Australia's involvement in the alliance without bringing in a whole lot of other issues, which is what the inquiry is doing. Like if you look at the political area of the inquiry and the democratic rights, and there's quite a substantial piece written on that. And the connection between Australia's being allied with the US to the, our democratic rights and to influence on Australia's politics is, is quite evident. It's quite obvious. Again, going back to the Whitlam government is just the most glaring and most obvious and there have been others since then. And of course the changes that we're going to see in a post-COVID society. Well that's right and the post-COVID society the changes are, I think it sort of kind of hits on the democratic rights too, is that a lot of the laws that have been brought in you know, under the cover of COVID and the health problems, risks that COVID poses and a lot of those laws will probably continue unlikely to be removed. And the other thing about the COVID too that it throws up, again, we're talking about the COVID exposed of um, so many areas that how the system does not work in the interest of the people. And it works in the interest of big corporations. And I guess, again, going back to a country like Australia, the fact that we couldn't manufacture, we don't manufacture anymore our own masks, we don't (laughs) manufacture our own PPEs, on the one hand, have to import them, and then on the other hand, we're manufacturing these weapons and military equipment for offensive wars is just obscene, absolutely obscene. And I think it's all those kind of contradictions that COVID and the Australia's involvement in the US alliance really throw up. Look, the other thing about, just generally about IPAN's objective for an independent and peaceful Australian foreign policy is that our contribution is tiny in terms of the wars, for instance, in Afghanistan and in um, and in Syria, the Middle East, on the ground, it's a, it's a very small contribution. But it's a very significant and major contribution to the U.S. internationally, where the U.S. uses Australia's support to rubber stamp a lot of its outrageous policies in the United Nations, its sanctions against countries like Venezuela. Our view is that by Australia removing itself from the U.S. alliance, our contribution in weakening the U.S. hegemony and U.S. military machine. In that sense, it, it is an, it's also an international obligation that we have. I, I was just reading the other day about in the U.N., I think the World Health Organization, a number of countries wanted to pass a motion condemning the use of powdered milk, Nestle's powdered milk in developing countries, I think in, in Africa, and the U.S. opposed that. Two other countries have voted with the U.S. and the other one was Australia. And it, it sort of gave, it's Australia's being used to legitimise U.S. world domination, basically. We do have a, an international obligation. I've been speaking with Shirley Winton from IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network, 
And the web page for your submissions is www.independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au And if you'd like to contact Shirley, 0417-456-001. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.